in racing, you are making calculated risks all the time. That's kind of what it's all about. Can I pass them here? Can I pass them there? Uh -huh. Do I have enough power to get by them? How good are my brakes? You're making all these decisions and they have to be instinctive. And there's a lot of it, which is actually very similar to a business and even a lot of that, which is similar to management. You need to know how far can I push before I'm gonna go off the edge. Wow. So there's a lot of, a lot of similarities there. Welcome to The Creator State, where we share stories of social innovation and entrepreneurship for movers, shakers, creators, and changemakers. Each episode will celebrate success and failure, ingenuity, and the endless pursuit of knowledge. Tech entrepreneur Kevin Marcus is naturally curious. With a knack for problem solving and tendency to take risks, he's created some amazing opportunities for success. He has started and sold companies, is the author of several patents, and a self-proclaimed tech evangelist who created some of the world's first mobile phone games. Today, Kevin is the co-founder and chief technology officer at Versium, a predictive analytics company helping businesses make sense of all their data. Tune in to hear how boredom can fuel innovation and why it's a great idea to step outside your comfort zone every once in a while. In this episode, we're speaking with Kevin inside a computer lab in the Marlin and Rosemary Bournes College of Engineering at the University of California, Riverside. I'm your host, Rekirby Hines. Welcome to The Creator State. I want to begin by asking you, if someone was to ask you what it is that you do, how would you describe what you do? Where would you go with that question? I usually start off with, with janitor. <laughs> the reason that I say that, though, is because, you know, when you have a business, there's a lot of moving parts, and ultimately it is the leadership's job to go and clean up all of the messes that exist. The stuff that's not getting done, you've got to identify that and say, hey, that's the problem that I'm going to go solve today because that's affecting the business today. Yes. Now, putting the janitor aside, yes. <laughs> I generally do lots of data processing work. That includes things like uh, integrating with CRM systems so that we can understand what type of data uh, a business may have on its customers and help them better understand who those customers are so it can inform their marketing and our sales efforts. Yes, yes. So the term analytics comes to mind because I, I'm somewhat of a sports person. Tell me if and how analytics plays a role within what it is that you do, what role it plays, and how you use um, that particular form of information gathering and usage in your business. Sure, so analytics is a huge part of it. And so essentially what we'll try to do with a lot of these businesses is we say, hey, we'll, we'll help you understand not just who your customer is, but maybe there are people who aren't currently your customers that should be. And so what we'll do in those cases is we'll go and say, let's take a look at what the properties or the attributes of the current customers you have are. Oh, they like to go fishing. They drive, you know, whatever, this kind of car and they're this, uh, this age group. Here are some other people that also are in that age group. But in order to identify what those primary attributes are that you need to look for in the first place, you've got to do some analytics. Yes. Just because a 70% of my customers are maybe a particular gender, that doesn't mean that that's who I should always sell to. Maybe, maybe, maybe the marketing I have just appeals to people of that gender. So you gotta be very careful when you go in to understand what's the root cause of what is creating these signals inside your marketing efforts. So Kevin, um, there's a write-up on you uh, somewhere uh, where you're described or you describe yourself as a tech evangelist. Mm -hmm. Now, I went, I've been to church and uh, <laughs> I know what evangelists do. Tell me within 
what you do, why do you see yourself, or, or, or do you see yourself that way? Sure, so uh, I would take the religious connotation out of <laughs> okay, it. Okay, well. <laughs> but uh, the way I like to think of it is that, you know, there's a lot of really cool technology that's out there. Yes. And I think being able to talk about it, communicate it, and show people the exciting new stuff that's coming out, for me, that's really fun. I like to participate in that. So when I say tech evangelist, really what I'm talking about is I like to take that neat new shiny toy and say, here's why it's cool, here's why you should pay attention, here's why it's gonna change your life. That's nice, nice, nice. So, so let's go back a little bit and let's talk about video games on telephones. Oh yes. <laughs> so I, I actually want you to, to walk me through your creation of these very early games for our cell phones. Yeah, so I'm, I'm so, not just, just No, this is great stuff, this is great stuff, I, I, I love this. So, um, gosh, this was probably the, the late 90s or so. So a lot, a lot of phones still had cords, right? You know, yeah. it was connected to a wall or so. Yeah. Um, but they did have cell phones and they were just coming out with, with these smartphones at the time. And so at the time I was at a company called Infospace okay. uh, up in the Seattle area. And uh, one of the things that Infospace did was it tried to put content onto phones. And a lot of times, if you think about it, sort of like a, an SMS kind of thing or, you know, very simple type of content, uh, that was a very small aspect of it. We were looking for the next generation of phone, the smartphones. So we had a uh, relationship with a very large carrier called AT&T, and uh-huh. they came and gave us some of these demo phones, basically phones for us to go start developing on yeah. so we could create new things for these phones that they would then go try to sell. So that by itself was interesting. We put the weather on there and you know, some, some boring applications like that, yeah. news, headlines, things like this. And then I took it with on a trip down to a company in the Bay Area called Oracle. Huh. And I was getting some database training, you know, spent the day there or whatever, and I had this this phone was like a brick. I mean, <laughs> it was, you know, that big, you know, yeah. I mean, it was huge, right? And I had it in my pocket, <laughs> okay? And uh, I was waiting to get picked up after this database stuff that uh, I had done at Oracle, and I'm sitting there with the phone, and I'm thinking to myself, man, I've got this awesome piece of technology, it's cutting edge, it's like, you know, the forefront of where phones are going, and I'm bored. Ah. That's not fun. And so immediately I thought the very first thing that you gotta do to kill boredom is have something to do, like play a game. So I went back up and literally the next day I wrote pick a number, right? You know, hey, pick a number between one and 100 and try to guess it, right? So that was the first thing. Then Hangman came after that, right? And some other very simple games that are easy to understand, easy for people to figure out how to do, and very easy to put on the phones of that day. Wow, I mean, this was kind of an immediate reaction to information that you had gathered, essentially having this phone sitting and going, what would make this phone useful at this moment? That's right. And coming up with, with, with hey, something to do with That's it. That's right. What is, if it differs from this, your creative process? Is this indicative of your creative process or it, was this an anomaly or was it a combination? So it's a fantastic question. So when I look at it a lot of times, I generally don't consider myself to be that creative of a person, but I am good at coming up with solutions to problems. So as soon as I can identify what that problem is, I can think about, okay, how would I solve it? What would get me to the point where I'd say that's not a problem anymore? That's, that's how it is. I don't go sit down and say, hey, let me come up with some cool wow. new idea. It's yeah. really there's a problem that's been proposed or put in front of me, and then I think about how I'd solve the problem. <laughs> so, so with that, um, let's go to the moon. Tell me about the Lunar X, I believe is the <laughs> name of it, the Lunar X yeah, so project, that- your involvement with it, the why, just based on the answer to the last question, you know, <laughs> There's a, there's a dilemma, what's the solution? So can you talk a little bit about, about your involvement with 
uh, this project? Sure. So um, it actually, the name of the company there is called Moon Express. Moon Express. Uh, yes. And uh, there was, uh, there's another organization totally unrelated to them called the X Prize, which offers very large cash prizes to people trying to solve problems that industry has otherwise overlooked. Uh -huh. uh, and so th they have all sorts of very interesting projects that are kind of always going on. But one of the ones they came out with is they said, hey, you know, we're decommissioning these space shuttles. You know, we're not doing anything in space anymore. It's kind of it's kind of going away. It's being overlooked. So they worked with a corporate partner, which at the time was Google, okay. who had offered a $30 million prize to the first company that could go get something on the moon and you know, it, it needed to meet some criteria, move around, do some stuff like that. Yes. Right around that same time, there was also a kind of big uptick in some, I'll just say, space-related things. There's movies coming out, all this stuff. So it seemed like a kind of fun, cool area, and there's a lot of, a lot of talk going on around it. So one of my friends approached me and said, hey, you know, I know this guy, his name is Bob Richards. He used to work with Carl Sagan. You'll see him on the Discovery Channel with the you know, Mars Pathfinder uh, uh, mission. You should, you should uh, take a look at this company and maybe you wanna you know, get involved there. Yeah. And so I'm thinking to myself, huh, I love astronomy. I love space. This sounds like a super fun thing. So um, initially it was pretty straightforward. It was just, you know, hey, I'll make an investment in the company. Yeah. Uh, but after maybe the first year or so, they actually gave me a call, which is kind of strange from the companies that usually you invest in a company, they don't start asking you questions. Yeah. In this particular case, they called me back and said, hey, we know you do some astrophotography, which I, I do just periodically, and they have a project with an organization called the International Lunar Observatory, which is based out of Hawaii. And the, the ILO's objective is to put a telescope of sorts on the moon and let people control that telescope from here over wow. the internet. Yes. So, kind of cool, right? You say, hey, I want to see a picture of Orion. It'll move this telescope, take a picture of it. Here's what it looks like from the moon. All sorts of clever issues start coming up there, but one of the things is how do we calibrate the camera once it lands? Uh, how do we adjust the focal point if we need to? You know, very basic things related to photography. Right, and right. so, having gone through some of this with my own astrophotography, I essentially would consult with them to provide them feedback on how you could consider doing that on the moon. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So, so how far along did you get in, in, in the process? I, I know that there have been some changes to um, the competition. Uh, where is the competition? Where are you in relationship to it and are you still pursuing the... So the, the, yes this? is the short answer. Okay, cool. um, uh, uh, Moon Express is still, still a viable company. They've got two launch pads out in Cape Canaveral. They've contracted with a company for you know getting their lander into into orbit or, or in this case into the to the moon, but their focus has been really on the landers, which is very very interesting because if you go and turn around and look at many of the companies that we hear about today, you know the SpaceXs of the world or even Blue Origin, lots of them have to do with propulsion and getting things to go up. Nobody's really focusing on okay once, once you it get lands somewhere then what. <laughs> <laughs> and so recently, NASA has been essentially giving out contracts to private companies because they're no longer doing that primary research. Got so uh, right now we then go and bid on these types of contracts in order to keep the business growing and going. Wow. So have you always been interested in the moon or how did you come about getting involved with this? So I'm just a naturally curious person. So I'm yeah. interested in lots and lots of things. Um, space is one of them. I think there are so many unanswered questions. You know, you can think of all of them. Some of them are, you know, gee, are there other creatures out there, right? Will we ever be able to see them? What will it look like? What kinds of fascinating new things are out there? So when I think about it and just the overall size, you know, of the universe, it is mind boggling. You can't really imagine it well. It's, it's just the distances between things are so far. The moon is right there. 
you can huh. get there in three days at typical space spaceship yeah. uh, speeds, right? So uh, when you look at that, you're like, hey, here's a, here's a heavenly body that is definitely not Earth, but we can get there in just three days. So that sounds like a fantastic place to start doing stuff. Wow. Now, I know there's a lot of talk about other planets, especially Mars. There's a lot of issues with going to Mars, right? It's a little bit further away. It's going to take you six months to get there. So when I turn around and look at my childhood, I had a very interesting moment with one of these really wobbly telescopes. I think uh -huh. it was from, uh, it's Costco now, but it was a price club back then. Yeah, <laughs> price club. And I didn't know how to use this thing. I was, you know, whatever, eight years old. And I set it up in, in the backyard one day and just started looking at, you know, anything that looked like a star, let me go look at that. And they all looked the same. It was totally boring. I didn't like it until just out of sheer chance, I happened to come across Saturn. And it, you know, it looks like a bright star, yeah. but through a telescope, oh, that takes you away. It's amazing. Wow. You can see the rings, you know, all sorts of stuff. And so at that point I was like, oh my, this is awesome. I really like this. What a, what a fascinating thing. Then of course, you know, as I started thinking about, hey, gonna go to college somewhere. I started realizing there wasn't really a whole lot of money in the space field huh. at that time. Yeah, yeah. So um, the next best thing, you know, turned out to be computer science, which at least exposes you to that if you want. And that was kind of nice. that was kind of how that went. And wow. now I now I live vicariously through through Moon Express. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is so cool. To think of beginning with, you know, like you said, something that you're doing independently that's, that's not directly related to, to an educational institution or an educational, you know, endeavor. So once you said, hey, you know, I'm going to check out this education thing or, you know, <laughs> what, what role did, has education on your own behalf or institutionally played in your trajectory? Fantastic question. Uh, education is like the primary tool that you have at your disposal to do whatever that thing is that you want. Right. Um, I, I sometimes will refer to it as the tools in the toolbox, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. um, you know, somebody may come in for an interview and really I don't want to know what they don't know. I just want to know what are the tools they have in their toolbox? What problem will our business have and will this guy be able to fix it? Yes or no. If the toolbox is big and wide, then probably they'll be able to figure something out. If it's super narrow and too focused in on something or if it, you know, isn't very deep, uh, then maybe, you know, you look for somebody else. But education ultimately is, is a tool. It's a thing that enables people to do whatever it is that they want to do. Nice. Nice. So tell me about your theater background. <laughs> tell me, oh, just talk a little bit about um, your brief foray into the land of theater. Sure. So like most, you know, uh, engineers, you know, a little bit introverted, didn't work well with, you know, other people, you know, it was tough to keep eye contact, you know, all, all these kinds of things, just the typical engineering things that you would expect, you know, not this vibrant, outgoing personality. So at some point in my stay here at UCR, um, one of my dorm mates said, hey, you should go and take this theater class with me. It's going to be great. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, sure, I've got to fill out these electives. Why not? And uh, the first day I realized, uh-oh, this, wow. <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is not what I was thinking I was going to be yeah. doing in here. I thought we were going to study films or something. <laughs> right? But it was actually a really, really important learning experience for me and a very important growing experience. And the reason is because all of those insecurities that I had about myself and all of the, all the animosity I had when talking to people, a lot of that started to go away. Wow. And the reason is because now I was learning, hey, I'm trying to be funny sometimes, sometimes I'm not. And other people who are watching what I'm doing, I'll see their reaction. And so it really helped me, I think, get a little bit more in tune with just how people are, 
wow. you know? And as an engineer at heart, yes. that's a super important skill. The soft skills are the things that a lot of engineers uh, don't really focus too much on, and, and, and it's a, a big limiter, I think. Okay, so Kevin, you had a brief stint in the theater, in, in, in a class, let's just call it a, a, an introduction to a theater class, and there are some things that it sounds like you garnered from that, that you pulled from that. Your company is listed as one of the top companies to work for in Seattle last year. How, if in any way, did that brief theatrical experience help, or were there other things along the way that you gathered as a leader to go, oh, this is the type of company I'd like to have, and here's the type of space that I'd like to create at this company that then landed you, you know, so on I'm, a list. I'm sure it's contributed something. If you ask me, you know, oh, is there one thing you did that you learned in theater? You know, I, I don't know. I think if anything, the one thing I really learned in theater was to maybe care a little less about what other people thought about me mm -hmm. and to be a little bit more open with sharing whatever ideas I might have and not worry how, how is somebody going to react to it. Yeah. That permeates in many different ways, certainly in an organization, in a company, et cetera. Um, but we do all sorts of other weird things. You know, we've, okay. we'll do the go-karting thing. We have Bitcoin miners in the office. We've got a 3D printer there. These oh, things wow. have nothing to do with, with what our main business is. But what'll happen is people get curious about it. They'll start playing around with it. They'll start printing something, doing something. It's, it's a fun way to say, hey, it's not always 100% all work. There's, there's some fun to be had here. And that really helps, I think, to build a team that respects each other, that can do stuff with each other. We work hard, we play hard. And I think that really helps. That's very cool. You mentioned go-karting, but there's another car Oh, that um, <laughs> that I, I, I glanced somewhere that, that, that you're somewhat interested in and, uh, and, and fond of. Can you talk a little bit about this vehicle well, or vehicles? A, there, there are long stories behind well, all of this. Well, give us one of those. <laughs> so it was probably around, again, the year 2000 or so, where I went out and I bought this will sound expensive, but it, it's not what you think. Okay. Uh, I, I bought a, a used uh, Ferrari. Okay. And uh, this car cost less than a new Lexus did at the time. So okay. if you were going to go buy a Lexus, you could buy this car, you know, easily, no problem. And that sort of started this very strange chain reaction for me where it's like, this car is very different and I kind of like it. <laughs> and, so, and so as I started learning more about it, what became clear to me that was not clear at first was that there's a huge community of people that are interested in you know, that particular marquee. I didn't realize that when I stuck my nose in there. Okay. But it turns out there is, right? And the thing that was like the sort of, I don't want to say pinnacle, but like sort of different tiers, if you will, yeah. and, and up at the top were the guys that went racing. Yes. Right? And so I'm like, well, that sounds fun. I should go try that, right? <laughs> I used to race BMX bikes when I was a kid, so ah. I've always kind of had a little bit of a racing itch. Got it. And so I went out and I, I bought a race car and started, started racing that around for a little while. And this is actually a really interesting thing because in racing, you are making calculated risks all the time. That's kind of what it's all about. Can I pass them here? Can I pass them there? Uh -huh. Do I have enough power to get by them? How good are my brakes? You're making all these decisions and they have to be instinctive. And there's a lot of it which is actually very similar to a business and even a lot of that which is similar to management. You need to know how far can I push before I'm gonna go off the edge. Wow. So there's a lot of, a lot of similarities there. Because you mentioned risk taking and you know, something like race car uh, driving uh, is one form of risk taking. You know, I, I, read, I read your bio and it said you were a serial entrepreneur. And, you know, um, if, you, if you look at, at, at this idea of, of starting new businesses, starting things from scratch, that idea of risk taking mm -hmm. plays a, a pivotal, a vital role in that. Which came first? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. 
I think the risk taking has kind of always been, you know, that's part of me. Um, I don't do I don't do super great with authority. I don't like people telling me what to do or what I can and can't do. Mm. Um, so I I, th- I think that's part of my personality. The risk taking was was first, and I think then it's like, okay, well, if this is how I am, what are the things that I can do with it? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. So I think that's kind of how it evolved, if you will. And what is the most exciting part, thrilling part of the creation of a new business for you? Oh yeah. Or parts. I mean, but but, but what is fun. that thing that makes you go, ah? Oh. <laughs> like, yes. So it's all fun. There, there are a couple of really big milestones where I'd say um, there's a certain satisfaction that I don't I don't feel that same way, uh, you know, often. Uh, the first is when you make like your first sale, right? You know, you've started a new thing, you've got a new company, whatever it does, it's probably selling something. Yeah. The first person that comes to buy something, there's a, just an intense gratification wow. there. Wow, the thing I did is something somebody actually wants, I didn't just guess wrong. Wow. That's a really, really um, good feeling at that time. Uh, the first time you hire a person, you know, if it's just you, that's one thing, right? Yeah. You can do whatever you want, you can call yourself a consultant or something, but when somebody places in you trust, hey, this guy's gonna figure it out. I want to work with them. That's a super, I mean, that's extremely powerful, right? Somebody else committing to you to try to work to the same vision that, that you're, you're pushing forward. That is also a very gratifying experience. See, wow. my hairs are standing wow. up talking about Man. <laughs> um, that's, that's cool. One other that's super, super interesting on the journey is, uh, you know, a lot of companies need to raise money in order for them to be able to, you know, grow with the pace that they want to. Yeah. The first time somebody says, hey, I've looked at what you do, and I see what it is, and I get it, and I'm interested in putting money into that. Then you, again, there's a certain gratification about that of, wow, I've done something that's so cool, other people wanna come do it, other people wanna come give me money to keep building this vision out. That's just a super awesome, amazing feeling. Of course, the last one (laughs) is, when it gets sold, yes, yes, <laughs> right? Yes. So somebody comes in and they say, wow, that's worth you know umpteen bajillions of dollars. Uh, I'm going to write you a check because I want that thing you've created so much. These are all great parts of the journey. They're really fun. Starting the company yeah. is like probably the most difficult thing. It's, it's like, there, there is an article that's written, it was on TechCrunch, uh, Michael Arrington wrote it. It's yeah. called, Are You a Pirate? It, it's huh. some years old, it's maybe five, 10 years old. Okay. And it goes on and it draws these, these interesting associations uh-huh. between being a pirate back in the say 1700s and being an entrepreneur today. Chances of a pirate striking it rich, getting all of the money, you know, all, the, all the treasures, all the you know, whatever that they're, they're trying to get, very, very low, right? So very high risk. And actually, there's almost the reward, yes, maybe it's there, but chances are you're gonna fail, yeah, right? Yeah. That's totally true of business as well. Wow. And when, when you look at that and say, do I look at the risk that's associated with it and do I get scared? Do I say, oh, haha, I don't wanna do that, I just want a stable income all the time and you know, give, me, give me my check every, every you know, week or two weeks or whatever it is. That, that's one approach and some people like that. Entrepreneurs, I think, they have a little bit of a different tolerance for that in that there's, and and this article would argue the same thing, and I I agree with it. It says, there is utility in that risk taking that most people would look and say, oh no, I don't wanna do that, it's too scary, too dangerous. Whereas an entrepreneur might look at it and say, oh, I really enjoy the feeling of that risk, and that's that's interesting, and there's probably nobody else has paved this path for me because it's so risky to start with. You have to be crazy. Wow. You talked a little bit about risk taking before, and um, you know, clearly the serial entrepreneurship has been a part of your existence. But can you talk a little bit about those 
things that didn't necessarily work out the way you envisioned them working out and what you learned or what you gained from that? Yeah, so it, it's a super interesting area. And again, psychology, um, they study this. It's called survivor bias or survivorship bias, where you go out, you look around, and you're like, oh, wow, look, there's all these successful companies, all these successful people. I'm going to go do that. And then almost like I said earlier, you don't necessarily see all the details and all the little minutiae that maybe had to come together for that person to have that success, yeah. right? Uh, all you see is that there was a success. And so that makes it so that you think it's super easy and everybody can do it. Uh, and it's not. It's, it's hard. And there is a lot of, a lot of little things, a lot of minutiae that's buried in there. So really getting some appreciation for, again, all those fine details so that you don't turn around and say, hey, just because I failed once doesn't mean I should never try again. Yeah. You know, you got to keep trying at it because who knows when it's going to when, you know, it's going to come together for you. Uh, just because you see all these successes and it makes it look easy doesn't mean it actually is. It is real work. So keep that in mind. Very cool. <laughs> Very cool. Now, let's get into the creator state of mind. In each episode, we ask our guests to share what's been on their minds, something they can't stop thinking about a new challenge they're facing, or what's inspired them into action recently. We call it the creator state of mind. What are you excited about right now? What, what, what has you hyped? Like, what are you going? So there are lots of things. Obviously, I'm still very excited about my business, Versium. Yes. Um, I see tremendous opportunity there. There are some really interesting market forces that are shifting around where the traditional sort of advertising agencies are getting a little bit pinched by okay. consulting companies trying to fix their data problems and things like this. Yeah, yeah, so I, yeah. I think that actually opens tremendous opportunities for, for our business right now. And uh, so far, at least with many of the companies that we talk to, they're, they're very receptive to it. So I think we're, I think we're onto something, something really good there. It is always a valuable learning opportunity to take time to reflect. At the end of each interview, we like to ask our guests this. In hindsight, what is something you wish you would have known when you were starting out? Well, before I, before I answer that, <laughs> there is a famous quote. I don't know who said it. Uh, you should look it up and tell me. Okay. <laughs> but uh, uh, it goes like this. It goes, uh, wisdom is an unusual teacher. It gives the lesson first, or the test first, and the lesson afterwards. Ooh. Right? <laughs> In other words, yes. you've got to experience it before you learn. Yes. So from that aspect, I don't... I mean, I'm not saying I'm proud of everything I've done or I couldn't have done things better or different, but I just take those as part of the learning experience and just adjust things as I move forward. So uh, are there any regrets? You know, sure, I'm sure I could think of something, dang, I wish I didn't buy that, whatever, I wish I didn't do that thing over there. But at the end of the day, I learned something from that process where at least now when I look back at it, I can say, that was not a good idea, I shouldn't do that. So in the future, I'll say, hey, I won't do that there. So I, I wouldn't change it. Yeah. It's part of the wisdom experience. There's, there's a lot of little things that have to come together to really make something happen. And I think um, it's really easy a lot of times, at least for me, to say, oh, hey, I want to go over there. Great. I'll, I'll walk over there and then I'll be there and problem solved, yeah, right? Yeah. A lot of times it might be, well, okay, how are you going to get there? It's quicksand. Okay, I'm not going to walk there. I'm going to jump there. Okay, but you can't jump either. Now, how are you going to get there, right? Yeah. So suddenly these things that on the surface seem like really, really simple problems to be able to solve, the complexities are hidden below, and you may not see them until you start the journey. Wow. 
So I wish I was maybe more respectful of that concept uh, and, and think a little bit more before I jump, you know, two feet that's, into the next thing. That's <laughs> a great way. That's a great, great way to phrase that, being respectful of, of that process and, and, and of, you know, the, the moment and the space that, that you're in at the time. Well, listen, man, it has been a pleasure meeting you and talking to you for this brief, brief time. I've gained a lot of pirate knowledge <laughs> and also, though, really looking at uh, this idea of, of risk taking that you talk about and how it's taken you from, you know, from one space to the next to the next, both uh, business wise as well as, you know, fun wise when you're talking about, you know, Ferraris and looking at, at, at the moon exploration. So. I appreciate it so much, man, and hopefully this won't be the last time we, we do this. Yeah, uh, maybe you come up to Seattle next time. Just send it, <laughs> send an invite, bro. We'll be there. All right, hey, thank you so much. I appreciate much it. appreciated, man. Thanks. Join us for our next episode when we sit down with Shelby Worthington Loomis to discuss the important role of gathering places in communities and how she's inviting other entrepreneurs to join her in revitalizing her community's downtown district. Thanks for listening. Find behind the scenes video and more information about our guests at creatorstate.com. Write us at creatorstate at ucr.edu or find us on Twitter and Facebook at The Creator State. There's a team creating this podcast. Help us out by subscribing on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen. And while you're there, leave us a review. Our producer for the show is Jennifer Merritt, with video, audio, and editing by Christy Zwicky, Christina Rodriguez, David Silos, Chan Moon, and Rosemarie Kwong. Digital strategy by Kelly McGrail. And design by Chrissy Danforth, Denise Wolf, Brad Rowe, and creative director Luis Sainz. The show is brought to you by the University of California, Riverside. I'm your host, Rekirby Hines. Thank you for joining us in the Creator State.